0: Before we get into another episode of the Jude Three Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box Two Six Two Zero Six. Jacksonville, Florida 32226 Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy!
1: Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, we're live. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jude Three Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jude Three Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest who's been on here before, uh, but now he's Dr. Walter Strickland. Welcome, uh, Dr. Strickland. How are you doing today?
2: Doing pretty well. It's good to be with, back with you again.
1: <laughs> good to have you. Um, for those who didn't see you on your episode, you did with our beloved JD Otis, the, on JD Otis Roberts. Uh, give them just a little bit of information about you
2: yeah so my name is walter strickland i'm a professor uh, of theology at southeastern baptist theological seminary in the college at southeastern i also serve as our associate vice president king university initiatives uh, here at the school where we're trying to address both individual and systemic racial issues on campus also uh, trying to encourage women on campus with their presence and their voice on our campus and so it's been a delight to do that for just over four years now.
1: Awesome, awesome. So um, we're going to talk about a new book you have out. Um, I have it here.
2: Yes, uh, yes.
1: Sent me a copy. Uh, it is plain theology for plain people. Um, Charles Octavius Booth. Uh, what was what motivated you uh, to to work to do this project?
2: Yeah. So I was doing work on my dissertation, and uh, I was talking to some folks, and they said, "Hey." have you ever heard of Charles Octavius Booth? And I'm like, no, I haven't, which is pretty much the answer that anybody has when you say, hey, do you know who Charles Octavius Booth is? The answer is is gonna be no. And so um, I went and I read um, some things that he did. And in fact, uh, it was so hard to find anything by him or about him. The only things I could find was his cyclopedia, which is basically like a historical account of Colored Baptists in Alabama. Which is the way it's uh talked about on there but it's basically black baptist in alabama at around the turn of the 20th century but then uh his only sort of constructive theological work was his plain theology for plain people so i looked everywhere for it nobody can tell me how to find it and finally i found a copy of it but it was so um it it was i actually got it in a word document like a word document that's how that's how uh how shady it kind of was when i got it you know they're like hey don't tell anybody that you got it from me i'm not sure who has the copyright laws of this thing but it's a good book read through it and and everything like that so i ended up reading it i loved it i think his contribution to theology into the church is fantastic especially for a man who was born into slavery uh coming out and being able to produce something like this is, is just amazing And so. I'm just I, I come across people often who are wondering where black voices were uh, in the historical Christian narrative in America. Uh, people are asking, where have we been? Have we been believers to use, you know, uh, a book title, you know, um, and it's from Evans? And so and, and my answer is, yes, we have. And so this book, bringing this back into print is my um, opportunity to speak out and say, African-Americans, black folk have been Christians. And not only that, we've been contributing to the story of uh, in the construction and the development of theology uh, in profound ways, but because um, African-Americans were often d- uh, discriminated against in the presses, a lot of the content that was produced by these Christians was uh, has gone by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And so I really just wanted to put it, put it back out there to let people know that this that people like Booth and others like him are out there.
1: Awesome, awesome. I thank you for doing this because I think it's gonna be very helpful. Um, tell us a little bit more about who Charles Booth is. Tell us a little bit more about the man.
2: Yeah, so uh, Booth was born in 1845 uh, into slavery. Uh, he was a slave of Nathaniel Howell uh, Sr. And he was um, basically uh, learned how to read um, in the shadows of a plantation, um, there were some teachers who were on a basically staying on the plantation where he was uh, living. And those teachers, in the shadows of the night, they got a tin plate that had letters on it, and they taught him how to read on the etchings of that tin plate. Hmm. And so he is um, extraordinarily gifted because he learned how to read in an environment that very wasn't that wasn't very hospitable to learning. Um, and so he ended up cultivating his his mind and his gift and his ability to read because he was hired by the town clerk to work for uh, a judge. Um, and in, in that, you know, for judges and lawyers at that time, we know that much of the logic of um, of the law is based on the book, uh, you know, the writings of Paul. And so what he was doing is that he would you know, begin reading, you know, the uh, the, the scripture uh in order to do his job but in doing so he actually came to a saving knowledge of christ and so um this happened just before emancipation and then at emancipation he uh really wanted to begin to to equip you know uh sharecroppers to equip plain people as he was saying to read the bible to have an orderly account of the christian faith so what what he was doing is that he uh was a church, you know, planter himself. Although back then they didn't call it church planting, he started the church uh, in um, what, what, what year did he start Dexter Avenue? Uh, the the year is escaping me, but right around the turn of the century, he he established Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, which many of us now know as King Memorial Baptist Church, because uh, Martin Luther King was his twentieth pastor, and that was the the uh, place where the. Um, uh, Montgomery bus boycott started. So he has a lot of, um, influence into some of these institutions that we've long, that we that we celebrate nowadays. So he, uh, started a church. He, um, started an institution. He started the university of Selma, Selma university. Uh, and so he was a founding father there. He believed in, in, in education. Uh, he was a, someone who did a lot of work with Booker T Washington. So uh, there's a lot of um, affinity there, but they had some differences, but a lot of affinity nonetheless. Uh, and then also he built bridges between the Southern Baptists of Alabama and also the uh, Colored Baptists of Alabama, of which he was one of the originating uh, members of the Colored Baptists of Alabama. And so he's a really he's, he's a pastor. He's a he started churches. He started institutions and he was a bridge builder as well. And so um, you know, just just like a W.E.B. Du Bois, he ended up getting a little bit frustrated with the progress of, of things uh, in the South. So during the Great Migration, he moved to, to Detroit and he actually died there in 1924. Uh, and, and the fact is, nobody n- even knows where he's, where he's buried. Oh, wow. And, yeah. And so uh, he, he sort of went into obscurity uh, and no one really knows much about his life after he went to Detroit. Uh, and the fact is, I, I've been trying to contact his family, trying to find friends, uh, contested Dexter, Dexter Avenue, contested, contacted the University of Selma, uh, and then really nobody has any additional help for me to get in contact with folks. So that, that's how that's how uh, anonymous he was at the end of his life. And so Charles this Booth is kind of a ghost in history. There's little traces of him. There's institutions that he started, uh, both churches and denominations and uh, seminaries that are still, you know, in tr- yeah, that are still around, but he's just hard to, to, um, to really nail down. But um, Plain Theology for Plain People came about because when he partnered with Southern Baptist, he asked Southern Baptist to help him to uh, educate rural pastors in Alabama. And so he had this itinerant uh, training that he would do for pastors and lay people around, and then he wrote, trial, uh, he wrote uh, Plain Theology for Plain People to be sort of a uh, a resource that he handed out and taught through when he went to those uh, to those sort of uh, those teaching sites.
1: So, is it a type of systematic theology?
2: Yes, it is. It is. It is. So, it, it's 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 a late level systematic theology, and it's funny because the, it's aimed at plain people, which is sharecroppers, which is people who have an elementary school education. But as you read through it, uh, which this is the original text, I didn't doctor it at all. Um, it's like he's writing to people who graduated high school because the level is so much (laughs) expected more out of, you know, readers and comprehension at that time. So uh, for the average person, adult in America, it's actually right on course. And there's a ton of scripture in there too. So uh, I would guess it might be around 15 to 20% scripture, which is actually a very good and sort of a doxological reality of the text that I think many people are going
1: to like. That's awesome what would be different from a uh, plain theology from plain people and maybe a uh, uh, systematic theology just the level of <laughs> uh of uh of uh of writing or just the, how he framed it
2: yeah yeah so um it's a lot shorter obviously but um as far as what is actually in both volumes um grudem even In his systematic, it's more of he gets a lot of verses and sort of plugs it into and just dumps it into a machine, turns the wheel a little bit and out pops his theology. So it's a lot more mechanistic and uh, didactic and sort of, you know, so to speak, uh, a a lot more regimented. But as you read Booth, he has that sort of uh, narratival sort of Narrative disposition that sort of ar- that arose out of a more oral tradition. And so even as he's framing what we're calling a systematic theology, it's a lot more narratival, it's a lot more uh, descriptive. He's beginning some of the conversation, well, the conversation in the text, and then you can just see how his the um, way in which he begins to develop these doctrines is a little bit different because he's sort of emerging it from below as as opposed to from above, and that he's not just uh, taking a bunch of verses and then using that to be a proof text or those as proof text for his theology. He's going to the biblical text and sort of allowing it to emerge, these doctrines to emerge organically out of that interaction with the text itself. And so uh, I think that's the that's one of the biggest uh, distinctions between, say, Grudem and a uh, in a booth but um and also it's just the language that's used to describe the things of god are just different i know we're dealing with two different people in two different time periods but even those who would follow in the tradition of booth they would just go about describing the realities of god in a different way and the the, the fact is is that amongst um many white evangelicals, I think they would do well to read Booth and to hear how he's describing God in a very orthodox way, yet he's using a set of words that point to God in ways that are a little bit different than what they're accustomed to. So it's almost like God comes uh, Alive again. Not that he was dead, but you know what I'm saying. He just the just the reality of God just washes over you afresh when you read it from the the perspective and from the explanation of a Charles Octavius Booth. That's
1: awesome. That's awesome. When we talk, when you talked about the ways in which he shaped things, what are what are if you could give two examples of doctrinally how he shaped things? What what would those be?
2: Um. Uh, Geez, you asked me some good questions. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Let's see. Um, So I would I would even talk about um, the way that he shapes his discussion about eschatology. Um, There is actually a lot less in eschatology than I would than many of us would assume will be in eschatology, really, because black folk had different questions than, you know, a Wayne Gruden would have. When it comes to the eschaton, oftentimes there's these uh, lots of charts in the systematic theologies that are often given at many evangelical uh, or conservative, you know, so to speak, schools. Uh, There's lots of um, graphs where they're trying to, you know, chart out the um, the the dates and times of things, which is sort of part and parcel to what you would think about with dispensational theology. Uh, But really. Booth is asking bigger questions. He's asking about the kingdom. He's asking about, um, you know, even more individual uh, eschatology. And so it's it's interesting that the set of questions that he is bringing to the to the text to find answers to, are shaped not by what you would typically find in the academy, but really through his lived experience. But also he is informed by those works. But he's still being faithful to answer the questions of the plain people to whom he was
1: writing. Awesome. So eschatology is one. What would be another one?
2: Uh, Christology be a a good one. I mean this is this is the this is the big one. Uh, This this idea of theology from above versus theology from below. Again, uh, really really trying to participate in the humanity of Christ is is a way that uh, these theologians people who have a a perspective of a theological f- formulation from below begin to try to look at Christ to really try to get into the narrative of Christ as opposed to stepping back and looking at the narrative of Christ and trying to analyze it. And so that's where you have a more Western perspective meeting a non Western perspective, which is really what uh, that is, this sort of theology from below, trying to get into that narrative. And so um, you'll see that even though he's trying to answer many of the sort of He's trying to get into that systematic theological framework, but you almost feel him fighting with it because he's not. Ch- he, while he wants to have that orderly account of the Christian faith that he talked about, it's almost at war with this getting into the story of, you know, he's just trying to get in and under and through the Bible, the biblical story, as he's sort of participating in the Christ event and seeing what that means for the black experience uh, in the 1890s.
1: Yeah, that's good. I, it makes me think of uh, what Rufus Burrow talks about in his book on Cone um, in 1968, where he writes about how African Americans in the 60s were having trouble relating to Black youth of that time because they were trying to fit uh, kind of a white conservative framework in their preaching. And then they discovered that the Black youth weren't as- asking those questions. So they had to yeah. change everything around and kind of cr- create a theological framework from the questions that were being asked and not just, um, a top down approach, but a bottom up approach. So I, exactly exactly. what, what you're alluding to that, uh, Charles Booth was doing what, what other things would you like our audience to know about Booth?
2: Um, let's see. I kind of overviewed a bunch of different things. Um, but, I'm trying to think of a good one that, that just is... So this is honestly one of the big troubles about Booth. There's so little about him out there. Um, a lot of the biographical information I, I've got from was autobiographical in the beginning of the encyclopedia. But that encyclopedia, which is like an encyclopedia of colored Baptist churches in Alabama, it was basically four or five pages of, of, um, of biography. Like autobiography, and then there's just some little things here and there. So really, it's crazy, but almost all that I told you is out there. It's all that's out there, and so he he really. I mean, there's really not a lot out there to go on. And so, um, but but let me see if, if I can. If there's a, another little tidbit that I can really work off of. Jeez, um, so. As. Seeing him as a educator, as a uh, pastor, as a as a you know establisher of an institution, I, I think what we're seeing, the sum total of that really is a person who was trying to use his gifts to meet the needs of his day.
1: Yeah.
2: And so um, as we look at Booth as a historical figure, I mean, he really was you know looking around and seeing what the needs were and just trying by God's grace to meet that almost like uh, almost like uh, in the scripture when we read Nehemiah he was like man my people are in our, our, the the city is in ruins the people's you know the, the walls in ruins he was broken into tears and he said lord help me to be you know to to be used of you to do this mighty work to rebuild the city and and i almost see like a roberts in that same lens because he's like there's so many things to be done what do i do how god how can you use me and so um i think when we when we see what we know about him i think it's imperative for us to see somebody who was trying to do that work of of um, of meeting those needs of his day and i think i would commend that to us for us to pray that same prayer especially in the mess that we are in in our national landscape in so many different ways to see like what area or areas might we be able to just chip away and hopefully we'll link arms of brothers and sisters um, and then begin to, to to do that work. Something else that I think is uh, interesting about Booth and just in retrospect on his life is that, you know, like now he has no clue about what the seeds that he's sown is doing. And so uh, University of Selma is still around Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and up being the the hub of the, of what became the Montgomery Bus Boycott, which then gave rise to this figure named Martin Luther King, which then gave rise to the SCLC. And then, I mean, and so he does not know like the, 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 what the, his efforts actually brought about. And so for us, let us not grow weary in well-doing because we have no idea what our efforts will do, even if we're discouraged like he was and we want to go to Detroit wherever your Detroit might be, just understand, you know, that the Lord is still using you. uh, So, so don't grow weary in that. So I I guess those are a couple of observations like just from afar that I would, I would make about him.
1: That's good. Um, One thing, one question that just came up that I thought of while you were talking was uh, for him to write this, uh, the Plain Theology for Plain People, he had to have a high view of the importance of orthodoxy um, and understanding um just how to frame things uh and to answer questions for people would that be uh something that you would you would uh, agree with
2: yeah definitely i mean he, he had a high view of scripture allowing scripture to be the um the sort of fountain from which his theology arose i mean even in my little introduction uh very briefly at the end i mentioned the fact that i think he's a great example for all theologians to to look to because he's really allowing his theology not to be beholden to a system but it's beholden to the text Mm. and so that's and that i think is a gift uh that the 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 african-american sort of uh christian tradition especially in the uh in in the 1800s offers someone like booth is because he's not concerned about you know, uh, covenant theology, or dispensational theology, or, you know, how reformed someone's thinking he is. I mean, and, and that's one observation that I made as I was reading the book for the first time. I'm like, he's not concerned about those debates of his day. He's concerned about the Bible and representing the Bible well in an organized manner. And so uh, I think that he would, he would be, a, he he is a good example to systematic theologians who are so concerned about positioning themselves with or against certain positions uh, as opposed to looking to the text. And so I, I think that the organic nature of this systematic the, uh, theological account is is very helpful for us.
1: Mm-hmm. And it does show that a high view of, of Scripture does push you to fight for injustices if looked at properly. Um, uh, I think it's helpful as well. Oh
2: yeah, definitely, because he, he was definitely busy. I mean, he was he, he was in the streets. He was uh, doing justice work. He was he was definitely, uh, you know, having lots of conversations about immigration and work and reform uh, as, as it pertains to those who were who were laboring unjustly, you know, uh, you know and being just dealt injustices. And so he, he was like that was definitely the springboard uh, or what sort of uh, made him go into that sort of conversation. And he took this with him. Because it wasn't like he was, you know, he was he had the Bible, and then he says, you know what, the Bible is encouraging me to do something about these injustices, and so therefore I going to put my Bible down and then do something else. He actually was was like, hey, I'm going to take the Bible and not only allow that to be a catalyst for doing work, you know, a- against injustice, but it's going to be give me directives about how to actually go about doing that work. And so uh, it, it's good to see him use this, this sort of systematic theological account as a uh, as a methodological resource as well for fighting injustice.
1: Yes. Do you know what made him? I know you said that he kind of grew weary um, and moved to Detroit. Do you know if there is any set of events that led him or just uh, events over time?
2: Yeah, it was just events over time. It was a kind of a culminating um, sort of slow process of change. Uh, really is really all that we have out there. He just said the slow process of chains drove him to despair. and he said, man, all these uh, efforts that I put in are, are are not changing things fast enough. And so he just said, you know what I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go north mm-hmm. and, and and the thing is uh, during that time, if you put if you put him in his context, the great migration, you know uh, from like nineteen fifteen to nineteen twenty five ish, like everybody was going to the cities. Uh, of the South, and they were going primarily to the cities of the North, primarily the Midwest. And so, um, you know, his his family was probably going, his friends were probably going, so it was hard to be in rural, in the rural South, after the Great Migration as a Black person. You're very vulnerable. You were uh, not just vulnerable because of being abused as a sharecropper and being paid unjust wages, but also numerically, you just didn't have enough people to to be in community with I mean because there's a lot of protection that comes in the community if something happens to you if you're targeted by a, a certain group, the community could absorb that blow as opposed to just one individual and so it was a lot of um, a lot of reasons that he might have gone um, up north uh, you know which all compounded his just despair with the whole situation
1: well, I think everybody should get this book uh, just like we told you we've we've had a lot of testimonials from J.D. Otis Roberts uh, um, conversation. <laughs> and I yes, think yeah. um, if you trust us with uh, Roberts, I think you should trust us and get this, uh, again, plain theology for plain people. Uh, Walter, before you leave, tell them a little bit about Kingdom Diversity and what you're doing at Southeastern.
2: Yeah, so at Southeastern, we are uh, doing, <laughs> staying busy, really. So Kingdom, the Kingdom Diversity Initiative was started in 2013. Uh, and really what we're trying to do is we're trying to address issues of individual and systemic uh, racial bias. uh, Also, gender, you know, on issues of gender as well at our school so that our school is like the kingdom of heaven. And in heaven, I believe that everyone's going to be represented and everyone's going to be able to have a voice there Uh, and then participating here on our campus as a communal act of theological education, where we're not only learning from the faculty, which we're trying to diversify more, which is one of the things that we do, but we're also trying to diversify our student body so that people can be sharpened by people from all sorts of different backgrounds, by resources that we're trying to uh, push uh, and bring into the classroom by a variety of uh, underheard voices. And so really, and, and then we're having events, we're trying to create spaces, both. Uh, small spaces on a small level like next Tuesday we're having an event uh, which is our monthly bag lunch series and it's gonna be on take a knee because that's a very you know live conversation right now and then we have mid-sized events where we have 150 people then we have a larger event every year where we try to welcome a couple hundred people to campus uh, along our student body so just trying to create those spaces uh, as extracurricular activities trying to uh, diversify our student body getting more scholarships for underrepresented groups, both men, or both women, and then students uh, who are uh, ethnically underrepresented, trying to help with uh, curricular development, not only with the books that are given, but the classes themselves that are offered, degree programs that are offered, helping the faculty to facilitate a multicultural learning context, but also bringing new faculty on to embody Christian experience in the classroom as they're instructing uh, a classroom that looks like the kingdom as well. So we're trying to hit, you know, on, on all those fronts. Uh, and it's been, it's been a, good, a good ride so far. The Lord is blessing us, uh, you know, in, in our efforts. And so we're just pleased to be, to be a part of what he's doing.
1: Awesome, I appreciate the work you're doing. Uh, how can those, how can people get in contact with you?
2: Yeah, yeah, so uh, through the Kenan Diversity means, we got at K underscore diversity. You can also follow the Kenan Diversity Initiative at edu. You can follow me at uh, W underscore Strickland. Also, you can follow some things that I do here and there at Walterstrickland.com com as well. And so and, and on both of those uh, mediums, there's ways to get in contact with me and to follow what's going on in, in my little world here at Southeastern. And as I sort of travel around the country a couple of times a month.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks again. And remember to get Plain Theology for Plain People. It's on Amazon. Um, is it? Anywhere else? Is it in stores as well?
2: Yes. It's, um, well, it's, it's on Amazon primarily. That's the primary outlet that we're using. And also, if you want to go to the press website, let's some Press, uh, you, you can go there. If you want to get it on Logos, if you're a Logos user, there, there might be some of you guys out there. Uh, feel free to go ahead and, and uh, buy it on there. And it's, uh, since that's an electronic copy, I think it's about half the price.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Walter.
2: No problem. It's, good. it's been good to be with you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at wwwjew 3 project.